Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. In this episode, we welcome Brandon. Brandon is also known as Brandon Extravaganza from the New York City voguing house, The House of Extravaganza. He's originally from Pennsylvania, but moved to New York City for 20 years before moving to Raleigh to gain his sobriety. From dancing and voguing at major events and shows in New York City for Pride, to being a store leader in retail, and now wanting to openly discuss his sobriety, HIV, and healing journey to inspire others. He just celebrated five years of sobriety from drugs in June 2023. Please welcome Brandon. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, why don't we get started here? Why don't you tell us your name, your preferred pronouns, and just a little bit about yourself? Okay. So my name is Brandon. Um, Other people know me in New York as Brandon Extravaganza from the House of Extravaganza. Um, I'm 40. Well, I'll be 41. Um, Pronouns are he, him, and his. Um, I currently reside in Raleigh, uh, originally from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, home of the Amish. Um, (laughs) I get the question, am I Amish? No, I'm not Amish. Um, and then I moved to New York 17, 18, lived there for like 20 years before I moved to Raleigh. Very nice. Very nice. I know Charlotte pretty well. So Raleigh, I'm sure is that's not too far from Charlotte. No, it's about like two and a half hours. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. It's, is it, how's the weather down there? Right now it's cloudy, gloomy, um, but it's still a positive day. Oh, that's wonderful. We love that. All right, so why don't you take us through your sobriety journey? You're going to start us off from your very first drinking and using experience and then just taking us all the way in up till now. Okay, so this year I did like a lot of soul searching, a lot of inner work and healing of trying to figure out what, where my first time drinking was. Um, it was, I believe, at age 13, 14. Um, it was right after my mother's sister was murdered by her husband. Um, I saw my parents basically drinking a lot. Um, so I thought it was okay. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the normal thing. Um, I started taking alcohol to school in like a little water bottle. Um, so I was drinking while taking classes. Um, yeah, so a little heavy stuff. (laughs) Um, and then it started slowing down around 15, around 15, um, I started dating somebody at 15, 16. Um, he was 20, 21. Um, so he started taking me to New York. I only lived two hours from New York, an hour from Philly. So he was taking me to Philly, New York. Um, back then in the 90s, you can go with a fake ID and stuff like that. So it was very accessible to get in clubs. Um, I would say the drinking slowed down because then I started doing drugs. Um, my first time ever was I believe at limelight and (laughs) going very back um I think my first time doing ecstasy I didn't do just one pill I did like three or four at once um so everybody was like oh god you're gonna you're gonna OD like we need to check on you and stuff like that 
Um, but, you know, that turned into, I would say, doing coke, um, K, um, and then being tricked into doing crystal. Um, I was doing drugs for about 20 some years, 20, like, yeah, 20 some years until I really got sober at 35. Um, I didn't realize what the, I guess, reasoning was behind me getting into drugs. Um, I found out that this year and I'll go deeper into that. Um, but why doing limelight, like going to limelight tunnel, sound factory, Twilo and all those, I got into a large group, um, which was the drugs were norm. Um, it was house parties. It was going out every single weekend. You went from Twilo on Fridays to tunnel on Saturdays, to limelight on Sundays, and your after hours was on Monday and then you slept mm -hmm. um, or tried to sleep. Um, and it was a constant, constant repetitive cycle every single weekend. Um, for me, it was, you know, going into ecstasy, going into cocaine. Um, my first time doing cocaine, I did, gosh, three 40 bags. Um, so yeah, I wasn't like that one person that like, oh, let me just try like a little bump. Like, no, it was like, I need the bag. Just give it to me all. Um, right out the gate, huh? Wow. <laughs> right, right off the gate. Um, but for me, it was also like, it was just the group of people that I was hanging out with. It was free. Everything was predominantly free for it. So it was, it was accessible. You would go to house parties and it would be sitting there on a table. It would, you know, you would go to after hours and people would be going to the bathroom and just doing it and offering it to you. Um, and then I got into fast forward to like, ever think 2003. 2002-2003 I joined the House of Extravaganza mm -hmm. so that name alone catapulted like everything like I guess performances dancing for pride and also with that name catapulted like people just really just sitting in the club saying oh you're an extravaganza you're in for free here's here's some here's some party favors for free too as well yeah it's a big that's uh, a big name that's that that hits for sure Yes. Um, and then I would say, you know, continue doing that. And then I always played around idea of what, like not played around, but I would say I always wanted to get sober, um, mm -hmm. but never felt like I was ready. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it continued until 2018. Um, you know, going back to the crystal is I was at limelight one night I was asking for a bag of Coke and one of my very close friends pretty much tricked me and said, oh, this is Coke. And she didn't warn me that it was actually crystal when I was going to be up for three days and that catapulted the addiction of crystal, mm. um, which, you know, I forgave her recently. Um, she's no longer with us. Um, and that also was reasoning for my addiction to is losing friends left and right and not knowing how to grieve their deaths um and then subconsciously forgetting what happened to me at 16 about my ex um this might get a little bit deeper um you know i realized that the addiction part was me subconsciously wanting to numb the pain of being sexually assaulted when i was 16 mm -hmm. um for a year um 
And I think that's what why I went really hard yeah. on the first time of trying XDC Coke and Crystal. I mean, my first time doing Crystal, it was not the bag. It was like the bag and then it continued for three or four days. Yeah. So I'm very grateful that I'm alive. Like I look back at the years and years and years I've done it and I should have been one the ones that have been dead. I'm very grateful that I'm not. Um, but yeah, so when I was 16, I like my ex would choke me and basically wait until I pass out and just basically have sex with me. Wow. So when I started going to New York and he was taking me to New York, I was started doing the drugs to just numb that pain um, to the point where at 18, I didn't even feel anything. I felt nothing. I, there was no feelings in me. Um, and then just, you know, it, I just kept going for 20 years, um, you know, and then when I found out I was diagnosed with HIV in 2015 and I was dating somebody um, that catapulted the hard, dark part of Crystal. Um, you know, he would tell me I'm useless. I'm never going to find love. I'm diseased. Um, I deserve to die. So when we broke up, he, you know, literally would just say, you should just go back to drugs and just die because that's all you're worth for. Um, so put me in a deep, dark, very dark depression where I would do crystal every single day. Um, I moved out of New York, but moved to Philly, which was a bad move from in my part, but it's something that I needed. Um, would stay at, would, I was renting a room and would have guys just come over anytime, any place. Um, I would go to the bathhouse three or four nights out of the week, uh, sometimes five nights out of the week and, you know, just stay there and, you know, continue doing crystal and being very promiscuous, letting guys have sex with me four or five, sometimes seven guys a day. Um, really didn't understand. Um, I was just caught up. It was, you know, I was trying to, I told myself I wanted to get sober and I was really, really trying to get sober, but the drug had this hold on me. Um, and so did my mind. It basically kept saying that I'm never going to amount to anything and no one's truly going to love me. No one's, you know, all my friends actually don't like me. All my friends are just my friends because of, you know, the extravaganza last name, um, me getting them to clothes for free, um, me get, getting them drugs for free. Um, so when I was in that deep, dark depression, everything was just very overwhelming and extreme, extremely dark where I was ready to just let it all go. And just, you know, I think that we have a, you know, that was a time that I didn't fear death. I welcomed it, um, which kind of catapulted me into recovery um, and sobriety. Um, you know, with the addiction part, I was homeless, living on the streets, living, sometimes living in my car, sometimes staying at friends' houses and, you know, on their couches, um, you know, bringing the drugs into their house. Um, one of my close friends, well, one of my best friends is now a retired NYPD. So I was bringing it into his house, um, not realizing that 
I was putting his job at jeopardy as putting his, you know, you know, freedom at jeopardy too, as well. Um, and not just his, but a lot of people, um, where I just didn't care. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't care anybody about my, like, I didn't even care about myself. So, and then I go into recovery, um, 2018, um, I, Five of my friends sat down and they decided to have an intervention, but not really an intervention together. They didn't even know that they were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't know each other. And basically they all went down and said, listen, we've, we've watched you do this for 20 years. We watched you lose jobs. We watched you, you know, not, you know, not being able to be stable. So this is your ultimatum. This is, you have to choose the drugs. You have to choose us. And anyone that knows me knows one of my values in life is loyalty and loyalty to friends. Um, and there is no, it was automatic. Okay. I'm choosing you guys. You know, to me, that was after I welcomed death and after I was going to parks and just like, you know, public having public sex, like it was just, it was crazy for me, like, you know, it, but it was the normal for me. And then seeing the outsiders, like my friends just being outsiders looking in mm -hmm. and just saying, you have to choose one or the other. You can't do this anymore. Um, and these are people that like do lights for, you know, my friend Guy and Robert, they do lights for um, Alegria. They've done lights for, you know, Atlantis. Um, you know, they sat down and they said, you know, we have friends that have died. We don't want to see you die. And we don't want to see you continue doing this. So you have to choose one or the other. Um, and there was no question. There was no question at that time. Um, you know, I think when all five of my friends sat down and talked to me about it, um, all I kept thinking was it's loyalty. Like, why would I, why would I spend, why would I have loyalty over a drug over my friends? Something that's going to have me up for three days and not have a clear head where my friends have had my back and, you know, have supported me in 20, 25 years. Um, so there's no, you know, there was, there was no question. Um, even my best friend, Shane, who I, he was the only person I ever told about the sexual abuse. He, he gave me the ultimatum. He was like, listen, you have to choose. And there's, you know, if you choose the drug, then we can't speak anymore. Uh, you know, you, you can't come to my mom's house. You know, you are no part of, I mean, you're not, you're not family anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so in that, it was, okay, this is somebody that I trusted with one secret that I've never told anyone. Um, and he's giving me that ultimatum. Like there's, there's no choice. It's, it's, it's friends, mm -hmm. friends over drugs any day. That's, 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 it's incredible that they were able to do that and it was able to get through to you. I've, um, you know, I listen to a lot of people's stories and a lot of times intervention like just kicks you into harder addiction because it's just you feel like oh well my friends don't believe in me and my friends don't want uh, you know screw you but I mean that's really great that they were able to it was effective that's that's actually one of the first times I've heard that an intervention was effective yeah it was it, it was different days different you know different areas like people and my friends in Philly like it was just set differently yeah where each of them and I've asked each one of them and they never spoke to any of them. And they all, they all said the exact same thing. And to me, that clicked in my head of like, some of them said it when I was sober. Some of them knew that 
when I was high, I would actually really think about it even more. So some of them actually did it while I was high. Mm -hmm. So they knew how to, they knew me so well that they knew how to train my brain or or trick my brain into getting sober Mm -hmm. um, or making me think about it and making me understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I asked every single one, you know, they never talked to each other. They never really sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach this. Uh, They just, each of them gave me an ultimatum and I had to look up outside and be like, there's five close friends that are sitting down Give me an ultimatum. They don't really talk to each other. Some yeah. of them don't even know each other. So that means that I really hit rock bottom. Yeah. And when I sat and I sat in my thoughts and, you know, I said and I acknowledged the fact that I welcomed death. I didn't fear death anymore. Mm-hmm. That was me saying, okay, I'm either going to die because I'm going to forget taking my medicine. I'm either going to die because somebody's just going to completely murder me. Or I'm just going to die just, or I'm just going to go to jail. Yeah. And at that point, it was like, okay, all my friends are saying this. I'm thinking this. So you know what? I picked up my front, my phone and I called one of my old roommates from New York. He moved to Raleigh and I said, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to leave. He basically said, pack up your stuff right now while you're on the phone with me, get in a car and just start driving. Mm. Um, Because he knew that if I stopped for any moment, that I was, I would just say, nope, I don't need to go. You know, I wasn't ready to leave. I, you know, but at that time it was like, okay, I need to break the cycle. How yeah. am I breaking the cycle? And it's, for me, it was leaving the tri-state area. Like I had to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, did you go into a recovery program or was it just kind of like a drop the drugs, leave it and move on to a new place that got you sober? Uh, it was drop the drugs, leave the place. Um, I have a huge thought process of people places and things Hmm. um that's what kept me going it was you know I just had to leave I had to go somewhere with I didn't know anyone I didn't you know no one really knew me no one knew the last name that I carried um because I could be walking down the street in Chelsea and people would be like here here you go um and in Raleigh it's like I didn't know anyone I only knew two people at the time and they knew I was trying to get sober and they were like, you know, we're not, you know, you have to stay sober. My friend that I moved in with, he was like, any, any thoughts of you doing drugs or any inkling of you being on drugs, your stuff is out on the street. Goodbye. Figure out how you're going to get somewhere. Um, and he's been my friend for 20 years. Um, so he knew exactly how, you know, what I needed. And for the first year, when I lived, when I moved to Raleigh, it was, I go to work, I come home, go to work, come home, didn't talk to anyone. Uh, you know, I would, you know, download Grinder, try to talk to people in there. And then I was like, nope, you know, Grinder's a, nope, not doing it. Right. Uh, slope, slippery slope that those out those apps for sure. Yes. Uh, you know, I would, you know, I would try to talk to people just to see who was around just to, you know, keep my mind off of things. And then, I would just be like, okay, this is not a good idea. This, you know, so I would delete it. And then I would do Tinder. And I was like, yeah, not a good idea. Um, And I think that at that point, I wasn't even really ready to meet anyone. Like, Mm -hmm. I moved down here. I promised myself that I would not have sex for four years, at least four years. Um, And that was me because I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate the difference between drugs and sex I used both of them together mm-hmm. so even the thought of having sex actually repulsed me mm-hmm. um 
in the first year. And I would speak to my therapist, speak to my doctor. And, you know, I would talk to them about how I, the one trigger that I would be afraid of if I would have sex, would that trigger me back into wanting to do drugs? Thank you for tuning into the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at SoberGaySunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talk and tell me something charged up and hit me on the head with your biggest mistakes. I don't want your daily drama, fill me in on family traumas, tell me all the medication that you take. Cause life's so short, we blink so fast to not say anything at all. It's wasted breath, you don't get back, so make it anything but small, small talking.